This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with Stephen Bourne. He is an independent scholar and a historian of Black Britain. We will be discussing his new book, Under Fire, Black Britain in Wartime, 1939 to 1945, published in London by History Press, 2020. Thank you for being with us today. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Were there any formative events in your life that catalyzed the scholarship you would engage in as an adult? Well, thank you for that question. It It's a very long story, but I'll give you the short answer. I come from South London, working class background, um, left school at 16, as a lot of working class kids did, with nothing, no qualifications, no access to university. But so I, in my early years, my sort of formative years, I, I kind of described myself as self-taught. So I taught myself how to use reference libraries, the British Library, the Imperial War Museum Library, and so on. I, I, had, I had this interest um in black british history and that's what drove me to do more research as i grew grew into my 20s and the interest in black british history came from an adopted relative who came into my family during the second world war and that was my aunt esther now i come from a white working class family but my great-grandmother adopted Esther into my family in 1940 during the London Blitz because Esther had lost her her father, who was a Guyanese settler, came to Britain before the First World War. Um, But he was killed in an accident um, and during the London Blitz and Esther was left on her own. But my great-grandmother and Aunt Esther lived in the same street, the same community. So... Granny had known her since she was a baby. By the time of the Second World War, Aunt Esther was a young woman, but she was on her own. So Granny said, come and live with me. It was as simple as that. Colour didn't come into it. They were both uh, going to the air raid shelters together during the bombing raids. They shared their rations. Um, And by the time I was born... uh, some years later granny had passed away i never knew her but aunt esther was part of my family and that's how my sister and i were raised 
so that I became very interested in the lives of the older women in my family, the working class women, and that included Aunt Esther. So it wasn't exclusively Esther that I was interested in. It was all the older women because their stories were never reflected in history books. So to cut a very long story short, in moving on to about 1989, 1990, I discovered that uh, there was a local publishing venture where Aunt Esther lived in West London. I'm from South London. She was in West London in Fulham. And they were publishing the life stories of local ethnic groups, such as uh, the Irish community, the Polish community, the African-Caribbean community in their London, that particular London borough. So Aunt Esther's story fitted neatly into that um, uh, programme that, that they had. And, and her life story was published in 1991 with my collaboration. And that was very much the very first book I ever had published. But in terms of Under Fire, I have included her in, in, the, in the Second World War book uh, because she did, she did work as, a, as a, what they called a fire guard. She was, um, she was stand on the roof of, of the buildings that she worked in and look out for incendiary bombs. And incendiary bombs were fire bombs that the Germans dropped on, on London and other cities to light the way for the bombers that would drop the big bombs and 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 and, and destroy buildings. And it was a very dangerous, uh, as you can imagine, uh, thing for her to do, for a fire guard to do. And uh, an incendiary bomb was very small, but it could do a lot of damage because it, it would, as soon as it hit, it would it would cause a fire and so she would have to use water or sand to put the fire out so she would tell me all these remarkable stories about the second world war going to the air raid shelter food rationing um what it was like it during air raids and being a fire guard and that's kind of fired my imagination about the second helped to fire my imagine imagination about the second world war the home front, the blitz, that, that that kind of thing. What message do you hope to convey to readers in this book? What story does your book tell? The Under Fire book was a lovely book to do because it was a, an attempt for the first time that I can remember uh, that a book combined the stories of Black British people on the home front including my Aunt Esther, with the stories of Black people from the West African and Caribbean colonies who joined the Royal Air Force, the British Army, the, the Navy, the armed services. So there's a combination. It's done. The book is done chronologically. So it starts 1939, the beginning of the war, and the chapters follow the story through, almost like a diary of black British people, whether they be from Britain or the Caribbean or West Africa, because we still had an empire then. So people were volunteering in Jamaica and Trinidad and Sierra Leone and Nigeria to, to join the armed forces to support the British, the mother country, as they called it, during the Second World War. So there's a combination of stories of um an African air raid warden in London during during that period, particularly during the London Blitz. And fortunately for me as a historian, 
he published a pamphlet in 1943 called Some Experiences of an African Air Raid Warden. His name was Ekpenyon. And I went to the British Library very, very early on in my research when I was still at school um, and found this pamphlet and kept it all these years. I've even met his daughter, uh, who's still alive. And so his story is in the book, an African air raid warden in London, and his personal experiences, but there are also stories of, of men and women, some of whom I met and made friends with who were in the armed services. Can you speculate on what might have happened to Black persons in Britain if Hitler's invasion of Britain were successful? I have often thought about that. There was a book written called If Hitler Had Invaded, um, written many years ago, back in the 1970s. And I read that book, and there was no mention of what would have happened to Britain's Black citizens, or indeed what would have happened if if the Germans had invaded the colonies in the Caribbean and West Africa. And so it had always stuck in my mind that this question had never been asked. We, it would have been easier to speculate what would have happened to the Jewish community in Britain because of what happened in Germany and occupied Europe during the Second World War with the concentration camps and the, the Holocaust. But I became aware as I got older that there were black people in Germany, black people in occupied Europe, some of whom sadly were incarcerated in the concentration camps. So I learned early on that it wasn't an exclusively Jewish story. Gay men, I'm a gay man, I found out that that gay men um, in occupied Europe, some of whom were arrested and put in concentration camps. So I started to to think about this, and I actually wrote to the author of that book, Norman Longmate, some years ago, I think he's passed on now, and asked him that question, did he consider it? And he said he didn't consider what would have happened to Britain's black population, what would have happened to my aunt, what would have happened to the African Air Raid Warden if Hitler had invaded. And we have to acknowledge that Hitler was very close to invading Britain in 1940. In 1940, Operation Sea Lion was the Nazi, um, the German um, operation. They were just across the channel, half an hour away, 30 minutes, and they would have been here. But Britain was saved by the fact that Hitler became very ambitious. And at the point at which they almost invaded Britain and, and they would have invaded us. They probably would have taken over this country and occupied this country. Hitler got overambitious and decided to invade Russia instead, which was the beginning of the end of the war, although it took years of of fighting and and loss of lives. Um, So Britain became very close in 1940 to being occupied by the Germans. And one can only speculate as to what would have happened to to black British citizens, and they probably would have ended up in concentration camps um, because they would have been visible. But based on what we know about the black German citizens and the black citizens of occupied Europe, we can pretty much hazard a guess that that would have happened to my aunt Esther and other black people in Britain. Your aunt Esther, as well as Joseph Bruce, are described in the book in some detail. What does your book reveal 
about Esther and Joseph. Can you provide some more information to our listeners about your book's revelations about them? Well, it, it, to be to be fair, it's not just about them. It's about many, many black people in Britain from different backgrounds, from different class backgrounds, educational backgrounds, uh, professions. You have Dr. Harold Moody, who was Jamaican, but settled here in Britain, in London in 1904. By 1939, when the war broke out, he was established as a as a black community leader, a leader who was very much part of British civil rights movement. He was described by one historian back in 1972 as Britain's Martin Luther King. He's never been given that recognition. That this is Dr. Howard Moody. So we had someone like him fighting the cause of black people in Britain. We had Aunt Esther at the other end of the spectrum. And in the middle, we had other black doctors, black nurses, uh, um, in all sorts of professions, and, and as I've already said, people in the armed services. So there's a whole cross-section of lives in the book. There's a chapter, for example, near the front of the book about black evacuees. And in British cities up and down the country, children uh, had to be evacuated from the cities to the countryside to strangers. Some of them had very happy times, some of them didn't. But no one had ever gone out of their way, no historian had gone out of their way to interview some of the black evacuees when they were obviously older, long after the war. No one had considered it, and I did. And so I interviewed um, a gentleman in the East End of London called Joseph Cozier, who was evacuated with his brothers and sisters to a village in the countryside. And this story is in the book. And he said, when the villagers came to pick the children to take home with them, um, they didn't want us because we were we were we were black. And so we ended up in the vicarage and the vicar, the local vicar didn't have a clue what to do with them. He didn't know what to feed them. So he gave them uh, biscuits for breakfast, lunch and dinner. And in the end, an Irish woman from their community in the East End of London, who was keeping an eye on things, found this out. And and Joseph told me that she took us in, took care of us right until the end of the war. Um, and without her, they but but they they wouldn't have have had a very happy time. But he said we had a wonderful time because then we relaxed and we we went and discovered rivers and trees and hills and sheep and cows things we'd never seen before because these were city children so it's interesting getting the black child's evacuees perspective although I'm, i met them when they were older because uh, i did a lot of this research back in the 1990s long before the book was published um, and it, it was fascinating getting these different perspectives but very similar experiences to to british people to white british people but with a slight difference because they were black. And that then I also met and made great friends with Lillian Bader. And Lillian was born in Liverpool in 1918. Um, her father was a Barbadian sailor in the First World War, a merchant seaman. And in the Second World War, Lillian joined what was called the WAFs, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. And she's one of the first black British women to join the armed services and she was she was in uniform all through the war 
And by the time I met her in 1991, she was very proud of her contribution to the war effort. She married a black British-born soldier, Ramsey, and they've both passed away now, but I'm friends with their um, grandson, who, who, you know, I'm friends with him now, so that family connection has, has continued. But I stored all these stories up over a long period of time before the book was published. Can you say more about the role of Dr. Harold Moody in the events of British history during the Second World War? Yes, thank you for, for asking that. Dr. Howard Moody, very important figure. Um, he was a family doctor in South London, same area where I grew up and now live. Um, so he was a very popular family doctor with the working class people of the, the area where he was based, which is sort of Peckham, Old Kent Road area. And that started before the First World War. So and then in 1931, he, he decided to establish the League of Coloured Peoples, which I suppose in many ways is the British version of the American NAACP. And this organisation, which was headed by Dr. Moody, brought together a lot of black middle class intellectuals and activists, um, and they would campaign for better treatment of black people in Britain if there was discrimination in housing, things like that. Throughout the 1930s, then the war broke out. One of Dr. Howard Moody's sons, uh, Joe, um, qualified as an officer in the British Army, but the British Army wouldn't have him as an officer. And when Joe went to his father and said, they've turned me down for officer training, Dr. Howard Moody used all the influence he had with the government, the military, um, the British Army, to change this, what, what we called in this country at that time, the colour bar. There was a colour bar in certain aspects of life. We didn't have segregation in the armed services that the Americans had. We didn't have segregation in on buses or in, in pl public places like the Americans had, but we did have what was called a, an unofficial colour bar, and some practiced it, some didn't. So it wasn't a, a blanket thing across the board, but the army did discriminate against having black officers. And Dr. Moody fought this on his son's behalf and his son was almost within months accepted into the British army for officer training. Uh, he didn't have to go back to the beginning and join the ranks. Um, and so Dr. Moody continued to be a very influential black British figure, a leader, um, a, a, a critic if things were not being done properly. Um, we have the BBC in Britain, the British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, people listen to the radio all through the war. When the N-word was used in a broadcast in 1940, uh, Dr Howard Moody complained to the BBC the head of the BBC, and received an apology and assurances that the N-word would not be used in BBC broadcasting again because it was a, it was deemed, obviously, racist and racially offensive. And 
he did he was very much uh, a peoples um, a man of the people so when west africans or people from the caribbean came to this country to serve uh, not just in in the armed services but in munitions factories and, and and other wartime jobs he would go out of his way to to meet them and greet them and welcome them to this country but of course doing all of this he burned himself out so he's tragically died in 1947 at the age of 64 he he became very ill with influenza it killed him but he was probably burned out because he did so much and it saddens me that he's not better known that he's not given the sort of status of dr martin luther king in the british school curriculum so dr martin luther king's life and example is taught to British school children. But I believe very strongly that Dr. Howard Moody should be taught alongside Dr. King, not instead of, but alongside Dr. Martin Luther King, so that British children, whatever background they're from, but particularly black British children in our schools today, learn that that we had these amazing black British people in our own history, that it wasn't just America, but Britain as well. You alluded to Lillian and Ramsey Bader. What stands out about their story? In what ways is it similar to and different from the stories of others that you include in this book? Well, Lillian and and Ramsey stand out simply because they were British-born. They didn't come from the Caribbean. They didn't come from West Africa. They didn't come from across the empire to join the services. They were British-born and were loyal to the king and country. They were loyal British citizens um, and felt that they had the right to be treated with equality. Uh, And indeed, they were. They were accepted into, well, Lillian was accepted into the Women's Air Force and Ramsey into the British Army. Um, And and Ramsey, for example, was at the D-Day landings in 1944. And again, the Black servicemen, the black soldiers that were at the D-Day landings, are never given any recognition. Much the same as the African-American GIs who were at the D-Day landings. If you watch that American film, classic American film, uh, 1962, The Longest Day, about the D-Day landings, you never see a black soldier land. I don't even think there was a black soldier or black soldiers in Steven Spielberg's Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan film, which dealt with the similar and British films like Dunkirk, the more recent one uh, 2017 I think it was released, never mentioned any black soldiers at the Dunkirk um, evacuation of 1940. So in popular cinema, these stories are always erased always overlooked and Ramsey was someone who was interviewed about his army career in the Second World War by the Imperial War Museum. So the Imperial War Museum did do lengthy interviews many, many years ago in the 1990s with Lillian and Ramsey. So as a researcher of this subject, it was great to access those. Although I knew Lillian, I didn't know Ramsey. He died before I I, I got to meet him. Um, As I say, popular films like like the ones I've mentioned always erase British and American films always erase this presence, this 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 presence in and support for the for the war, support for the war effort, I should say. How, how did black soldiers in the American army 
perceived oh, black the, the, they, they they were welcomed i mean from 1942 thousands and thousands of african-american gi's soldiers came to to britain with the with their white compatriots if you like um and they were welcomed into to british homes british public houses we call them pubs um meeting places restaurants there wasn't really much discrimination at all against the african-american gis and there were a lot of white british people that stuck up for them when the american the white american gis uh, were racist or made racist comments or were brutal towards the African-American GIs, the white British people would stand up for them. Um, it's it's an incredible story that should be better known. Uh, and there's a chapter about that in the book Under Fire, of how the African-Americans were received, because the British... Mm, British people realised that they needed the Americans' support. Once the Americans came into the war, December the 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbour, that's, how, as I'm sure you know, how the Americans came into the war. Very quickly, they were being, the American servicemen were being shipped to Britain, to Europe, uh, to fight alongside the British and the Europeans. And so they were welcomed, but it's a shame that the American military continued right up until after the war to segregate them, to segregate them, American soldiers in their battalions, in their regiments or units or whatever they would have been called. But I have seen American newsreel films from the war where you see black soldiers and white soldiers together, and I don't quite work, I haven't quite worked that out. So if they were segregated, which they were, there were instances where some of them mixed. And I sometimes wonder what, if anyone's ever done any research on white American servicemen's memories of black soldiers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You share the following poem by Una Marson called The Convoy. I'll recite it for our listeners. Then each driver turned to greet me as his truck went roaring by, brightly smiled or waving gaily, as he quickly caught my eye. There I stood, moved, yet unmoving, weeping with no sign of tears, greeting all those unknown soldiers I had known a thousand years, for they were my own blood brothers, brown like me as warm of heart, and their souls were glad to greet me in the great white busy marts our gay hearts grown sad and wiser stirred to life a second then a thousand words unsaid were spoken and we took such heart again oh my brothers in the conflict of our bewildered life how much strength we bring together what fine courage for the strife can you tell us about una marson I can. Una. yeah 
What does the poem teach us and what does the poem say about Una Morrison and about Black experiences in Britain during World War II? Una Morrison came from Jamaica to London in 1932. She was a poet. She was a feminist. She was an act, a political activist. She, and she became, during the Second World War, the BBC's first Black woman radio producer. She produced, was the producer of a long-running series on BBC Radio called Call in the West Indies, where she would bring uh, guests into the into the BBC studio to broadcast to the Caribbean and North America um, region of, of the BBC. And she would bring black servicemen and women into the studio to read messages to their loved ones back in Africa and the Caribbean. Um, but being a poet, it was one of the very few, if it, the only poet poem I could find, where she wrote about the African American GIs that were here during the Second World War, based in Britain, and her connection to them. Although she had already connected with servicemen and women from the Caribbean, particularly Jamaica, where she was from originally, uh, the connection with the African American GIs is quite moving and emotional. It's a very brilliant poem. I love the poem very much, which is why I wanted to inclu include it in the book. And um, and Una was a very important trailblazing figure, a black woman in Britain from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, who made an enormous impact through radio, but also through her poems. And sometimes she wrote plays as well. She's one of the first black women to have a play produced in, in London in 1934, as early as 1934. And she was also connected to Dr. Harold Moody. She, she When she arrived here, she had digs, um, or Dr. Harold Moody provided her with a, a room in his home. He, he and his wife looked after her for the first couple of years before she ventured out and found a home of her own. And again, she's an astounding person, and this particular poem says a lot about her connection to the African-American GIs, who she knows are here to help the war effort and her appreciation and love for them. Which stories that you shared in the book moved you most on a personal level? Very difficult to single one out. I, I suppose if I have to think about that it would probably be Dr Harold Moody because he did so much and yet is so little regarded now you know since he died he's just almost become invisible in British history which is scandalous and so disrespectful and I know in my heart that if children and young people in our schools in Britain and indeed in America I would love Americans, young Americans, to learn about him and his example and the example that he set. But having said that, uh, I was recently interviewed for a local newspaper because my local uh, authority, local council, I don't know what they're called in, 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 in Toronto or America, um, are naming a health centre not far from where I live in South London, naming it in his honour. It's going to be the Dr. Howard Moody Health Centre. 
which is very much in the spirit of his work as a doctor, um, but also, and also there's a library nearby in the same street, actually, Thurlow Street in, in my part of London, South London, which is being named in honour of Una Marson. So I like to take a little bit of credit for that because I've pushed very hard for both Dr. Moody and Una Marson to be recognised locally where I live because they are local figures in my part of London. Um, I'm not going to take full credit because other people have done similar work. But yes, Dr. Howard Moody Health Centre and the Unimarsen Library, both of which will be opened next year. So fingers crossed, I'm hoping I'll be invited to the openings of both because <laughs> I would love to stand there and see this, this happen. But to answer your question, I think Dr. Moody, of all the people in the book, is the most incredible and inspiring for me. If you don't want me asking this, um, what was the spectrum of opinion among Black persons in Britain towards the Holocaust and towards Hitler's atrocities against the Jews? I was curious. Lillian Bader, Lillian Bader, sorry, um, mentioned it in a television documentary many, many years ago. A young Black person in the audience, it was a discussion program on British television, I think it was about 1991. And this young black person who was quite political and quite radical couldn't understand why people like Lillian, black people like Lillian, supported the British during the war when the British owned the colonies in across the empire, had colonised the Caribbean, had colonised West Africa. And a very valid question, why would you support the British in the armed services when Britain had suppressed your the homelands not Lillian because she was British born and her very simple answer was and I've never heard any black person say this before or since we would have ended up in the ovens that was her answer and the young black person was sort of like astounded it's a very telling um, comment that she made because she knew she knew during the war well she knew after the war certainly what had happened to the Jewish community, the, the others, all the other groups that were rounded up and put in the concentration camps and, and in some instances murdered. And she knew what would have happened to her if Hitler had invaded. Uh, but it's the only time I've ever heard a black person make that connection. And it really got me thinking as well how little... If we had a better understanding of this history, how much richer and more in-depth it would be. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you kindly share with us what you're working on now as a current or subsequent project? Well, thank you for the question. I, I've been writing Black British history books for over 30 years, but I've only just begun to make inroads into publishing i've just had a book published literally a couple of weeks ago called black poppies uh, about the black servicemen and the black community in britain during the first world war 1914 to 1918 and this is aimed specifically at children a black british history book for children because there is a huge gap in the market in the book market for books of this kind and in schools. And so I, I may go on and do another similar book, 
for children, Black British History Book for children. I don't know. At the moment, I'm having a little bit of a break. But my latest book, um, there's information about all, all my books on my website. I have a website that people can access um, th that will give information about all my books. But but certainly, if I do another book in the near future, it will be another Black British History Book for children because that's where my heart is taking me. Wonderful. I wish you the best of luck in this upcoming project. And thank you wholeheartedly for everything you sacrificed to bring this wonderful and erudite volume to public attention. Thank you. As we bring our interview today to a close, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Stephen Bourne, who is an independent scholar and a historian of Black Britain. We have been discussing his new book, Under Fire, Black Britain in Wartime, 1939 to 1945, published in London by History Press 2020. Thank you.